Welcome to Inside the Sports Car Paddock on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. Got six interviews for you this week. As usual, we start off with the man who makes us smarter, that being the great race engineer, Jeff Brown, talking about balance of performance. And I hope that your eyes don't glaze over immediately. Initially, we had planned to use this episode leading into the Rolex 24 at Daytona to discuss the BOP changes to the field and how they might impact one car or another. Jeff said, you know, let's do something better as we think a lot of you have a good feel for what those changes will do in a general sense to affect performance. Jeff said, let's go deeper and maybe explain the knock-on effects, the ones that maybe you wouldn't anticipate would affect the cars. So not necessarily in the ways of just normal lap time, speeding them up or slowing them down, but the other areas of performance where key BOP changes do really burrow in and make life either miserable for some or happier for others. Key point, though, as you'll find during the discussion, none of the BOP changes make life easy, even for those who get a break. Then we move on to Wayne Taylor discussing something new. Going into the Rolex 24 at Daytona for the first time in a really long time without one of his sons in the car. So we discuss what it's going to be like Some of the feelings he's already processed. Surprising. Surprisingly human, which is great to hear from Wayne. About how this is going to be something new to embark upon. Not just the physical changes to who's driving his Wayne Taylor Racing Cadillac, but dealing with a different construct to the team. Going racing without his sons as a motivation. Then we're going to move into four interviews from our friend Graham Goodwin. All coming from Australia. The Bend, site of the most recent Asian Le Mans series round. Kick off with our pal, Crailsy, Richard Crail, beloved announcer, talking about The Bend and the Bathurst 12-hour. Then we moved to Dr. Sam Shaheen, man responsible for developing The Bend, new circuit that many people seem to love down under. Then we close with two, one from Davide Rigon, part of the Ferrari factory team on the bend in the new Ferrari 488 GT3 Evo. Close with Nick Cassidy on racing an LMP2 at the bend and his plans, competition plans for the year. If this is your first time listening to the Marshall Pruitt podcast, would urge you to check out marshallpruittpodcast.com where we have our 700 plus previous episodes in every way imaginable to subscribe to our shows. All right, let's get going with our friend Jeff Brown first, followed by some other delightful guests, all brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. That's right, it's the start of Inside the Sports Car Paddock. What, I think this is our 33rd show? Something like that, Jeff. Number 33, add another three to that. That makes a really happy one for you, 333, Mr. Ferrari guy. Here we are. Starting exactly the new the new sticker is awesome. I was going to say starting a new season with a new sticker. You're in the uh, the good old Scandia Ferrari on our sticker there. So I love that great work by yeah. Roger Warwick. You're getting ready to head to Daytona, try and win the 24 hour race there in the LMP2 class with Era Motorsport. You did us a favor and said, "Hey, let's talk about." BOP, 
and hopefully folks don't just automatically hit the stop button. We're going to talk about BOP because it does govern how the race plays out in all the classes. But what we wanted to do, this is Jeff's suggestion, which is a great one, is not do the normal talk. This car got weight. This car got less power. And this is what to look for in the race. Jeff said, let's talk about the knock-on effects that maybe fans and listeners either don't know or having thought through a lot of it, maybe haven't considered a few things in how BOP changes will actually have a bit of a domino effect on a number of other areas in the cars throughout the race that will really play a difference beyond, again, just simply the adding of something or taking something away, which is what's listed in those BOP tables. Where do you think we should start, Jeff? Well, um, uh, let's start with your your article was great detailing the BOP stuff. And I think we use, interestingly, the DPI cars, the three manufacturers, all got kind of different BOP adjustments. And, and some of the GT cars got similar ones. So maybe we just hit the three um, DPI cars, start with the Acura, Knowing and kind of go what we that. talk. Yeah, what we talk about there, honestly, it applies to all well the three of the classes that had bop adjustments your class lmp2 did not because that class class not bop'd (laughs) yeah it's it's, uh, it's so nice to be in a non-bop class but uh so anyway i can look at this with a um uh curiosity rather than uh i don't know i'm not sitting there going oh man they put weight on us are you kidding me furiosity yes furiosity right right so yeah, we could, uh, you know, your the Acura, um, as you pointed out, um, they took some power away from those guys through the boost table. And, you know, uh, it's, interestingly enough, IMSA does their power in kilowatts, um, which is kind of, I, I guess I get it. We're not quite electric cars yet, but anyway. So it's about a five kilowatt reduction average across the board through their boost table, which is about six and a half horsepower. So um, a kilowatt is 1.34 horsepower. So so that's a six and a half horsepower decrease on the Acura, which you go, oh, well, that's not too much. It's 1%, roughly 1% power decrease. And here's where I'd, I'd like to talk about that a little bit. People are like, 1%, uh, six and a half horsepower, that's nothing. Well, it's a lot in racing terms. Um, just to give an idea, you know, a six and a half horsepower decrease doesn't take a second to lap off your lap time. But just to show what 1% is, 1% is one second per lap at Daytona. So if you think 1% in performance difference is insignificant, it's not. It's a second a lap at Daytona. Um, now, the 6.5 horsepower isn't a second a lap. I'm just pointing out that 6.5 horsepower, 1% is a, is, a, is a thing. So what they'll have, the knock-on effects there, are they'll burn less fuel, which is a good thing. Um, interestingly, IMSA gave them um, more fuel. They gave them another liter, but they gave all the DPI cars more fuel across the board. So I think they're trying to get the uh, stint length in time and laps to equal out. 
And that's their goal with the fuel capacity adjustments. It's not to allow one car to go more laps or to uh, burn more fuel. It's to keep the stint lengths equal so that everybody burn, everybody runs, let's say, 22 laps in 35 minutes, and then they have to pit. So nobody has an advantage on fuel range. So with the Acura, a little less power, 1% less power, not insignificant, that will affect their um, top speed, that will affect their acceleration, it will affect their fuel economy, it also could affect their aerodynamics, because the race engineers might go, well, we don't have as much power, we want to run less wing, Yeah. but then if, then if they decide to run less wing, if they're allowed to by the rules, because there's aerodynamic homologations, but if they can take some drag off, now they're probably making less downforce, which then affects their tire life, affects their traction. And so a six and a half horsepower increase has this massive effect on tire life, top speed, downforce, handling, ride height, because if you change your aerodynamics because of the power, now the downforce has changed and your ride height has changed and how the air flows underneath the car has changed. So you think, well, all they did was change the boost a little bit. No problem. We'll just change the boost and go right on. Now, those race engineers at Penske right now are working on a different setup of the car aerodynamically and mechanically because they have a slight 1% decrease in horsepower. Crazy. <laughs> yep. That, that yep. 1% does, again, funnily enough, have a significant knock-on effect so if we're no. going alphabetically, Jeff, obviously we started off in the A's with Acura. If we move to the next letter among manufacturers, it's Cadillac and their DPIVR reigning, defending all three Rolex 24s with the DPIs in the field have been won by Cadillacs. They have received a little bit of a break in this time, not extra power but actually extra lack of weight explain to us how this uh, 10 kilo reduction coming down (laughs) to 940 kilos and gaining two liters of fuel capacity what are the knock-ons from that well it's um so 10 kilos uh is 22 pounds for us americans and um interestingly enough that is almost exactly a 1% weight reduction for them. Uh, we, we just showed how that's not insignificant. So as a rule of thumb, and this is a very broad rule of thumb, but it, it, based on the simulations, it's, it's good enough to kind of use as a, as a rule of thumb, is about a 0.1 second per 10-pound change in weight per lap and and again daytona is different than long beach and all of that but let's that's that's a good talking point and it's not it's not always inaccurate so so a 22 pound decrease is about 0.2 seconds faster for the for the cadillac based on simulation so if you extrapolate that for the whole race just to show what kind of performance gain that could be. 0.2 seconds. The race will end up about 800 laps for the DPI cars. That's 160 seconds or about a lap and a half. 
So take 22 pounds off a car, and it's going to travel a lap and a half further in the 24-hour race than it would with those 22 pounds. It's crazy. Now, it's not really going to happen that way because there'll be yellows and things like that. But it sh- again, it shows that this uh, t- 10 kilo is not insignificant. So the Cadillac um, will get better tire degradation because the uh, the car's lighter. It's still the heaviest car. So they're still going to have you know a, a worse tire deg because of the lateral loading of the tire, the braking. They have to just change direction of more weight than everybody else. And that has to be, that energy has to be absorbed by the tire. So they're still, it'll help them, but they're still going to have a little bit of, um, a little bit worse tire deg. Braking and brake wear, it'll help them a little bit by taking that off. They won't have as much brake energy and heat into the components. They may actually be able to run the brake ducts a little bit more closed because with a heavier car, you're putting more energy into the brakes. You have to run your brake ducts open a little bit more. Now they'll possibly be able to close the brake ducts a little bit and gain top speed because they'll have less drag. So not only will the lighter weight help them accelerate more, it could potentially help aerodynamically in a, in a top speed gain because of the, closed off brake ducts and then there's rate distribution they have to take those 10 kilos off someplace there i'm not sure about the delara but uh, most prototypes have up to four, four locations where you can add weight or remove weight one is the keel which is basically right under the driver's seat then there's the passenger compartment then there's usually an interface between the engine and the bulkhead where some weight can go and then they can put some usually right underneath the gearbox under between the floor and the gearbox so the cadillac runners have to decide where do they want to take this 10 kilos off and if they if they're low on weight in other words if if they don't have a lot of ballast in the car which i understand the cadillacs don't have a lot of ballast they may have that weight in a place where removing it actually disrupts their weight balance, their weight distribution. And, and it should be noted, Jeff, that be, IMSA does not say you're allowed to remove 10 kilos and it must be taken from spot A, B, C, or D. They just simply say you can remove that weight. So it is up to the team's discretion. Exactly. And it's it, it, it can come off where wherever the weight is allowed to be added by the homologation. So so let's assume, let's let's say worst case scenario for the Cadillac guys. Their car weighs nine hundred and fifty kilos with ten kilos of weight in it. And now they're allowed to take ten kilos off to get down to nine forty. But that ten kilos was right under the gearbox. So now they take the 10 kilos off and the weight distribution is messed up. Now they have more front weight and that affects the balance of the car. So it's lighter. It'll accelerate better, brake better, and in theory should corner better because you just have less weight to move around the corner. But if where they have to take it off is in the wrong spot, it could it might not be as big an effect as you would think because the weight distribution might be messed up. 
And if we're talking Jeff Rolex 24 specifically, where every team that has the ability, we're not just talking DPI, we're talking any and every team with every model, if they have a low drag, low downforce kit, or the ability to just lay back their wings as much as possible, everyone's trying to cut through the... cut through the air as cleanly as they can. Yep. And if we're talking about taking weight off of the back of the car in this instance, again, just theoretical, if we're taking right. 10 kilos off the back of the car at a place where you're at high top speed for so much of the lap where dialing rear wing in to move that weight distribution more towards the back in a dynamic situation uh, that doesn't really help with your top speed. It also affects your fuel mileage. So the point being here is, while yes, you can take that 10 kilos off, if you end up having to take it off the back of the car, for example, not a lot you would want to do from a tuning standpoint to move that weight, to put more weight on the back of the car through aerodynamics. So therefore, you're looking at concerns of possibly with too much weight distribution being moved to the nose of the car, Uh, higher consumption rate of the rear tires, sliding a bit more possibly. We're not talking big Tokyo drift type stuff, but just, you know, that little bit of extra weight needed to settle the rear tires and keep them planted and happy instead of those little slides that add up to higher rates of tire consumption. Right. It's all those little knock-on effects that I love, so I'm so glad uh, you said, let's get into it. So, but share some thoughts about that. Again, if yeah, you can I'm, take it often, the key area is great, but if you only have it in one area and it's maybe not what you would want, maybe that weight reduction isn't exactly the thing you were hoping for. Exactly. I mean, they could, you know, using our example, which I'm not sure is correct with the. Yeah, with we're just the theorizing here, just theorizing. Yeah. But if it is at the rear and they have to take it off the rear and they really don't want to, they, the race engineers will be running simulations this week about um, different spring rates, different anti-roll bar rates at the rear to try to compensate and get the balance back where they, where they want it. I mean, the, uh, look at the Porsche uh, GTLM car. They have to go 10 kilos up. They'll be looking at the opposite but the same – kind of affect the Acura GTD car, 25 kilos. <laughs> Holy smokes. I mean, they got to find a place to put it and where the weight distribution will be the best for them. That's going to be a, that's going to be a big change. The Audi uh, GTD car down 10 kilos, much like the Cadillac DPI. It's going to be in the same, the same situation, but it's not just take 10 kilos off and Yahoo, we're going to go faster you could actually end up about the same speed if you have to take it off in a spot that messes up your balance and you don't get that balance back through rake, ride height, spring rates, anti-roll bar, damper changes. Um, so it's not always just as straightforward as, oh, 10 kilos, they'll go faster. Yeah, there's more to it than that. Yeah, and maybe the... <clears throat> For those who are learning about this stuff for the first time or, or early in their stage of learning all these, the technical vagaries that really do affect uh, sports car competition. If we're using this reduction of 10 kilo uh, as a thing to stick with here for another moment, Jeff, it's not like 
thinking maybe in terms of a marathon runner who's faster than everybody and the organizers say, well, for this 26 point whatever K or 26 whatever mile run, you're going to have to put on a weight belt carrying 22 pounds to slow you down. And then they say, well, okay, you can take it off. And all of a sudden in that dynamic, that runner would speed up dramatically and everything would be wonderful for them. In our mm-hmm. instance, when, say, the Cadillac teams take off that proverbial 22-pound weight belt, yes, in theory, there is more performance for them to gain, but they have to rebalance the entire car and reconsider, as you mentioned, spring rates, damping forces, anti-roll bars, aerodynamic settings, tire pressures, camber caster, toe, yada, right? I mean, so maybe that's another area if we're just talking the knock-on effect where if you look at the the BOP release, 10 kilos off of the Cadillacs, great, they're going to be faster. What comes to mind for you if you're running a car and all of a sudden for this Rolex 24 go, okay, I can take 10, 10 kilos off. What are all the things that you as a race engineer think I got to change this, 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 and this, and this? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> boy, there, I, I look at where I take that weight off and then I try to compensate for that. It could be a good thing. Let's say you only have one spot that you can put that weight. When they made you, when they made me weigh 10 kilos heavier, when they gave me that weight belt, <clears throat> let's say I only had one place that I could put it. I, I just physically couldn't put it any place. And that messed up my weight distribution. Now I get to take that 10 kilo weight belt off and maybe my weight distribution gets better. So maybe I get a, the double effect. Not only don't I have to carry the weight belt, but I'm going to be able to, to have a better balanced car that uses the tires more equally and handles better for the drivers. So it, it could be, more than just 10 kilos off a runner because the balance is going to help. Or it could be worse because it's going to mess my balance up. I don't specifically know with the Cadillac, but I guarantee you there's a lot of people at Pratt & Miller and all the Cadillac teams running those numbers right now to figure out exactly what they want to do because they're going to show up Thursday and there's not a lot of practicing left. You you don't really want to be trying to find a setup on Thursday morning at the, at the Rolex that's time has passed for that. So this is a, yeah, a little bit of an anxious moment for some. And then here's the other interesting aspect of BOP and knock on effects. So using the DPI class is a bit of a, uh, bit of a guide for the changes to the rest of the classes and those cars. There are some, like the BMW and GT Le Mans, uh, like uh, what, I think three of the models in GTD as well. No change. Yeah. Uh, no nothing. No nothing. Now, granted, and I should say performance changes, um, but in those cases as well, no fuel allocation, nothing. Truly, the way you ran it at the Roar, showing up exactly the same for the 24. Uh, yeah. Let's talk about Mazda since okay. they have no performance changes. So akin to some of the other cars in the class in that uh, capa- or in the field in that capacity, but they do have an addition of two liters of fuel capacity. Now that 
Again, we're talking liters, not gallons. Two liters. It's not much, right? I mean, if you right. get out your carton of milk in the morning for your cereal or whatever, you're again, we're not talking a lot. So therefore, right. Jeff, there's no way that can have any real knock-on effects, right? I say right. wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Tell us about wink, wink. how two liters, surprisingly, it's going to knock yep. you upside the head with those effects. Exactly. I mean, and uh, everybody's going to see a theme here. Guess what? 1% again. Um, the difference between the Mazda's fuel capacity and the Cadillac's. Cadillac has the least at 75 liters. Mazda now has the most at 82 liters. That difference is about 1%. And um, yeah, you would think uh, not, not that big a deal. But let's just compare the Mazda carries about five point five and a quarter kilos more fuel or 11 pounds more fuel than the Cadillac does when both cars are full. When both cars are empty, they weigh the minimum weight that IMSA requires by the rules. But when they come in for a pit stop and they fill them up, the Mazda goes out a bigger percentage heavier than its minimum weight than the Cadillac does. And so what's interesting is that the BOP numbers and the analysis come when the cars are running their quickest laps in practice. And they're running those quickest laps when they're lowest on fuel. So they're very close to their minimum weight that IMSA mandates uh, by the rules. When they're, when they're running these numbers that IMSA is looking at to do the balance of performance adjustment. So they do the balance of performance so that, in theory, all the cars run the same lap time when they're running their fastest on low fuel. Great. Now you come in for a pit stop. The Mazda fills up and puts in 11 pounds, 11 and a half pounds more fuel than the Cadillac does. And they both go out of the pits. The Mazda is at a big disadvantage because that 11 pounds, that car is now heavier. You know, they're equal when they're on low fuel. But when we fill them up, the Mazda is now heavier. It has this distinct disadvantage. Not only is it 11 pounds heavier, that is in a fuel cell, and that weight isn't at the bottom of the car. It's between the bottom of the car and basically the driver's shoulders. So that 11 pounds is higher up, too. So the Mazda has a higher center of gravity. Pendulum effect. Exactly. And more fuel, more weight in the car. And its performance takes a big, bigger hit on full tanks when they're they should be seemingly or in theory equal when they're on light tanks, but the Mazda will take a bigger performance hit because of that big gas tank. It needs the big gas tank because that engine burns more fuel. And in order to give the Mazda the same range, the same number of laps or minutes on a tank of gas, they have to have 82 liters because it burns a lot of fuel. That engine burns a lot of fuel apparently. So, but a lot of people would think, oh, well, that's great. They get two more liters and they'll have the same range. So everything's equal. You know, the knock-on effect is that on full tanks, that Mazda will take a bigger hit. And the swing from full tanks to light tanks in weight, they're going to they have a bigger change in weight from full to light tanks. So the balance of their car is going to change more from full to light tanks than a car that has a small tank and the weight stays more consistent over a run. 
So all things to consider, um, you know, you, you, you have more fuel. It's, there's a lot of other effects that you have to deal with. And you can ask me why I know this so well, uh, because <laughs> <laughs> last year, the Nissan, our Nissan at core had the biggest gas tank by far of anyone. We had 85 liters at times, and that was all that car would physically hold. There was no restrictors or baffles in there to reduce the fuel cell size that Ligier built it. And that's all we could jam in there. And because it burned a lot of it, that engine burned a lot of fuel, made a lot of power, burned a lot of fuel. But boy, did we suffer when everybody came in on a restart and we had a much heavier car relative to everybody else because of that extra fuel. So Mazda is going to have to deal with that a little bit here, too. Let's close with this final topic on knock on effects with BOP at the Rolex 24. And this, this is so thankful, Jeff, that you've shared some time with us to do this. Let's close on trying to mitigate some of those knock on effects. So for fans that watch IndyCar racing, they're probably very familiar with hearing during the broadcast spotter engineer, the strategist over the radio, remember to work your tools, reset your tools, right? Lots of things. Well, I shouldn't say lots, but plenty of things in the cockpit that an IndyCar driver can use in the same dynamic of coming in, light empty tank filling it all the way up and burning that throughout a stint so when they start the stint with a full tank of fuel they will quote reset their tools manipulate those throughout the run to try and mitigate the big swings in balance share with folks both prototype and gt what is allowed in the rules in IMSA in terms of tools to play with to try and mm-hmm. manage these swings in balance because of weight either coming off the car or coming back in through fuel? Folks might be surprised that despite the high, high state of technology, don't necessarily have 20 different things to play with to manage no. this problem. Yeah, exactly. So the... the the interesting thing for me was always, uh, like you pointed out, uh, LMP1 and LMP2 cars, as mandated by the ACO regulations, are not allowed adjustable anti-roll bars like an Indy car, Which sway is, bar. I've never. Bar. Do you have any idea why? This makes no, no. sense to me. <laughs> it never <laughs> has. Me. I mean, we have cars like the, you know, the Toyota and the Audi and the Porsches that ran a while back and. And those cars are, as you said, some of the most sophisticated sports racing cars ever built, if not the, and we don't have adjustable anti-roll bars. Well, I mean, traction control, anti-lock brakes, paddle (laughs) shift, but we won't allow you to just yank on a lever to make something stiffer or softer, like uh, crazy electronics, a mechanical system. No, not as bizarre. Yeah. So that was always kind of weird. So LMP2 in IMSA, because it's a worldwide homologated class, retains that retains that rule. But it's not a BOP class, so it's kind of a off, little off topic for today. DPI, because it has, it uses homologated P2 cars as a base, but IMSA has their own 
homologation exceptions, they've allowed adjustable anti-roll bars in the DPI cars. So those cars can adjust the front and rear anti-roll bar stiffness. And as fuel burns, they can adjust that. As tire degradation happens, they can adjust their bars, like you see in IndyCar where they're adjusting their bars all the time. So that's that's a good, effective tool drivers will use in in DPI cars. Um, the other thing that they'll that most of the classes will have is the traction control. You touched on it. Um, traction control is not just a program that's in the car and just works. It can be adjusted by the driver so that when the tires are new, he might turn down the traction control a little bit and use so it's not holding him back so much. But as the tires start to degrade, he might need to use more traction control because he doesn't have as much grip. And that will apply to GTD, GTLM, uh, even LMP2. It applies to all classes. They have adjustable traction control, some way more sophisticated than others. Most of them have two modes where they can adjust the forward traction control, and then they have another one that is kind of a yaw rate, where as the car slides sideways, if the back's coming out, they can have the traction control kick in and kind of catch a snap oversteer at the exit. So drivers can play with that as the fuel burns and the, and the uh, weight changes. And then there's the old standby of brake bias, which is just, there, there we have a mechanical knob, which just affects how much braking force is put on the front tires relative to the rear tires. And if you have a car where as your fuel burns off, your weight distribution changes significantly, you might actually want to adjust your brake bias based on your that, that fuel because you may have more weight on the front or more weight on the rear um, as the fuel burns off. So the drivers can change all of that. The engineers um, will be looking at all of that on telemetry and trying to help them out um, with suggestions for that. Like you hear the IndyCar engineers, you know, suggesting, you know, work your tools. It's the same kind of, same kind of thing in sports car racing. Um, and some drivers will use that more than others uh, based on their personal personal preference. Um, drivers usually know the settings they like. So when they jump in, they may be sitting there while the final fuel is going in and adjust their, put their bars where they want it, put their traction control settings where they want it and adjust their brake bias where they want it because it's likely different than the driver that was just in the car and got out. Hopefully that's not too much for folks to digest, but I also hope that the insight here on how little change, little tweak, little adjustment here, there, significant knock-on effects. A lot of work for race engineers to get ready for the race, to try and compensate, in some cases overcome, in other cases use what should be a benefit, but they still have to come up with a way to make the car perform with that uh, BOP brake in mind. Complex stuff, my friend. Yeah, yeah, it's what it's 
what makes it fun. Um, I guess fun. If you're looking at your article you did here, if you're the Acura GTD car and you have to add 25 kilos, maybe fun's the wrong word for this, but um, you know, who knows? It's, it's going to be, it's going to be interesting. Or if you're the Lamborghini GTD and you have to put four degrees more rear wing in the car, holy smokes. Now you got more drag, more downforce, more load on the tires, more fuel consumption, uh, having a cut through the air with more wing angle. Exactly. I mean, it's the guys who I really think are as weird as it seems are jumping up and down are the guys that you mentioned who have no changes the lexus mercedes porsche gtds the what was it bmw gt lm i mean those guys at least they had three days running on the same car that they're bringing to the to the race with the other guys all have some differences so you know sometimes some you know you can wish for i hope we get some help I'm not so sure that a little bit here isn't uh, isn't a benefit to just have nothing changed. In theory as well, you come in with maybe solid work at the roar, being able to continue right into Rolex 24 practice instead of having to try and figure out the right balance and set up with all the changes you've been hit with. So, Exactly. All right, friend. Thank you as always for helping us to open the show and make our brains a little smarter and (laughs) we will be uh, keeping track of you and the ear motorsport team. And if you, if you happen to be in Daytona and have access to the pits, stop by and find Mr. Brown with the ear motorsport. Is it the number 18? Is it 18? Yep. Blue and blue and silver. We're, if you're in pit lane, it's going to be a little bit past, um, Pass start finish, and if you're in the garage area, it's smack dab in the middle of the prototype garage, uh, right in garage 14 also. And in, uh, we we hope for sure that the transfer happens. Jeff should have a pocket full of new Inside the Sports Car Paddock <laughs> stickers with his lovely mug on them, uh, <laughs> maybe to give you one or two. So uh, stop by and say hi to Jeff, and uh, be respectful if it looks like he's working. Uh, and in conversation with somebody but if he's free be sure to say hello and you might even go home with a sticker to put on somebody you don't like so awesome yeah looks the 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 new logo is fantastic marshall despite the fact that i'm on there but uh it looks looks pretty nice (laughs) (laughs) all right my friend well we'll speak here soon on the next episode and hopefully all goes well for you and the team thank you very much i appreciate it we'll talk soon Wayne Taylor, this is going to be an interesting Rolex 24 for you, I would imagine, in many ways. Coming in, defending race winner. Very different lineup, though, than 12 months ago. Also for the full season. Going to have a first in, man, a really long time where the only Taylor name involved in the operation from a on pit lane standpoint it's going to be you no kids in the car uh, obviously your amazing wife shelly part of the organization as well but i think most people have thought of wayne taylor racing as taylor and sons where should we start should we start in this this change with your kids yeah. elsewhere yeah well you know the thing is um so many people 
over the years have asked the question, you know, um, or sort of surmised that this team was just me and the kids and that um, basically nobody could offer them anything because they were always going to be stuck with me. And that was never the intent. So when Ricky Jordan, and we won everything in 17, and he got the offer from Penske, that pretty much um, was what I had hoped us doing together as a family was going to provide down the road. And that certainly worked out, and Ricky's very happy over Penske and with Honda. And then Jordan, you know, I have to say that um, he was always the GT guy, but he got so good in prototypes. And um, it took a long time to make it to make that decision to go back from DPI back to Corvette. But then again, it's this all-new mid-engine Corvette, and you know, how do you turn down a, fac- a fuel factory program with Corvette? Because those guys have been around for years and years. They've won tons of races. They've won championships, and he's with Garcia, who's um, really good, and. Um, so when I went to the raw, it was really it was really weird. You know, I didn't think about it, but the moment I arrived at the track, I had this really empty feeling in my stomach, mm. and it was really uncomfortable. And I started thinking, you know, what am I doing here? But it didn't take long. Um, as soon as first practice start started, and then being on the timing stand, it was as if. Nothing had changed. We just had change of names of drivers. So um, I'm just happy for them that they've got, you know, that they've proved themselves well enough through me that they both have warranted these really big drives. Um, so, you know, bringing Briscoe over, as, as you know, is sort of like my third son. You know, I and Max managed him when he came over here when he was doing Toyota Formula One testing and stuff and uh he's actually driven for us in the past but every time i don't think he'd got in the car we'd always have some sort of problem but you know once the ford thing closed the door and me and jordan was going ryan was the first call and um and then you know getting scott dixon was i think was a big two um uh, because if you look at the indycar guys and stuff i mean the guys are five car indycar champion He's so cool and calm, and he's won the race a few times. And so it's not like I'm, I've got drivers that have never done this race before. Sure. You know, so, so the team's excited. They've, uh, the drivers are bringing in a lot of input. We've got Kobayashi back, who's really fast. Uh, Ringer's back now. He sort of resumes a more um, top role, let's say. Um, I don't like to say that he's the number one or number two in the car, but he's certainly the one that's got most of the experience. So Ryan can, the guys can feed off him, and then you know, by the time we get to Sebring, we'll be all together again. You know, everybody will know what's going on. So you mentioned the next item I wanted to broach, that being motivation, right? Without your sons there, I'm curious how that might affect you. Obviously, you've got this long-term relationship with General Motors, uh, with Konica Minolta. I mean, you've got business that'll keep going whether your sons are or are not in the car. But it is an interesting one, though, Wayne, to think about just for you and maybe some others within the team who've drawn motivation, inspiration 
from this family dynamic what it's like having to go racing without your sons in the car for the first time. Were you able to find some joy or some new aspects of working with, you know, kids you didn't raise, uh, but maybe old kids. There's all the yeah. drivers are younger than you, but getting to work yeah. with Dixie and, you know, some others. Yeah. Uh, did you yeah. find something new or different in there that you liked? Well, you know, the thing is, as you said, I mean, our team has always been a family team, but the family is not just Ricky and Jordan and Shelly and I. It's it's the crew of people that we have. You know, Travis Hoger, general manager, Brian Pillar, technical director, Chris Finchard, crew chief. I mean, these guys and Bill Mullen and, and Chris Seaman, they've all been with me for many, many years. You think back, Bill Mullen used to strap me into the car, and he's now strapped both my kids in the car. Yeah. So that, you know, so... There is a very big family dynamic in our organization. Um, and the biggest thing, you know, is that I've had such loyal relationships with sponsors like Conica Minolta, you know, with um, Mike Matei and Rick Taylor specifically, um, who've become friends. I mean, we've always been friends, but, you know, they love the whole business. of it. They, they are probably more disappointed than I am losing the kids. Um, but I'm, hopefully they'll move on with that as we keep going. But the motivation is the formula is taking some, uh, looks like um, there's some light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, probably the first year in two years that I've gone into the season being this positive because, you know, the man at the top is directing this in the short period of time he's been there has done an enormous amount. And I have a lot of faith in the fact that, um, you know, things are going to happen and things are going to get done. And from every aspect of the program, program not just um, the VOP side of it, there's the B2B side. There's all these other business parts parts of it that, that are important to me and to my partners. So the motivation is there and maybe even bigger um, than before. Um, and, you know, it's always nice to work with different drivers. I really enjoy that. And, um you know, and then General Motors, I mean, what can I say about those guys? Mark Royce, Campbell, Mark Kent, you know, Mark's been a friend since and was my program manager in 1991 when I was driving in Shepherd. And I've been, if you think about it, I've run the Oldsmobile uh, program for them, the Pontiac brand for them, the Corvette brand, and now the Cadillac brand. So it's been a strong and successful relationship, I feel. I hope they feel the same. But at the same time, you know, with all these other things, just remember that one of the things that I always wanted to do was when I set up Wayne Taylor Racing, yes, there was some Ricky and Jordan in it, but that wasn't the ultimate plan. The ultimate plan was to set up a team that if there were any new sponsors or any new manufacturers or current manufacturers, there were some big changes going on in the ferries, that it wouldn't, everybody wouldn't hesitate to say, geez, look at those guys, you know, they best presented They've got corporate partners. They're getting results. Those are the guys we should be talking to, you know. And finally, I think it's starting to um, pay dividends. I mean, this business is, you know, got, there's so much continuity and there's so many teams that come in and out, of, or out, you know, and you take them seriously for a year or two and then they're gone. And I think today, um, as we talk, I'm the longest-lasting um, uh, team owner, driver, whatever you want to call me, in the series. I've never missed a race. IMSA's since, cockroach. We can't kill yeah, you. Yeah, 
since 1990. Wow. I've been every single race, every single, you know, when it comes from the Camel, Camel GTP era, the Exxon World Sports Car Championship, the USRRC, the American Le Mans Series, the Grand Am Championship, now the new DPI program. I've been around for a long time and, um, you know, still still loving it as much as I did then. Now, as you say, there are new challenges. Um, the one thing I will say, and I will continue to say, the only negative I have is that I wish that they would just take BOP and get rid of it because it makes no sense in any form. And it's not just with him. So this is all forms of prototype or sports car racing around the world. You know, you're supposed to be able to build the best car and get the best drivers and the best crew. That's what you, that's what you do as an owner. But then, you know, to then being that competitive person and then suddenly be told, oh, we're going to slow you down because someone else is not fast enough. Well, it's not my problem that they couldn't get their shit together yeah. in the beginning and they built crappy cars and got crappy drivers. So it's not really fair. So, you know, we're being punished for doing the right job. Um, I do see a change already in the BOP um, here, which is certainly better than in the prior years, certainly 18 and 19. Uh, 18 and 19 these things hadn't have changed somewhat, but unfortunately I had to kick up the biggest fuss ever to get some things to happen, which it shouldn't be like that. And now it appears that um, people are taking notice and we are having one-on-ones, you know, with a sanctioning body, which is what makes it successful. It's what Bill France used to say about NASCAR. What makes it successful was that he would always be talking to the team owners and drivers and sponsors and stuff. And we've lacked that over the years. But now we have strong leadership. And so I'm, I'm excited. Let's close, Wayne, on a pretty cool distinction, defending winners of the Rolex 24 can't imagine. Well, if you do have a magic formula on exactly how you're going to repeat and it happens and you're going to need to give us that formula, but tell us about this because obviously you don't want to see someone else drive into the victory lane. You visited last year. Any thoughts on your chances and whether some idiots like me who look at you all as one of the absolute favorites, if not the favorite to, uh, to win, are on the target or off base? Well, you know, what I think of is that since the DPI program, we've actually we've actually won two out of the last three Daytona 24 hours. So I'm sure naturally people look at us as the favorite. But, you know, there's so many things that go into this. I can tell you this, that we won the race last year. Um, we got lucky because of the conditions. And, and the strategy worked, and we won the race. I feel if last year's race was all in the dry, we probably wouldn't have won it because we didn't have a fast car. That was the time when the BOP was definitely off song. But um, I think it's going to be probably the hardest of all because the cars are pretty evenly matched. We don't know if anybody else is holding anything back. Um, but, you know, like I say to everybody and say to my sponsors, and that's this. You know, I can't guarantee we're going to win this 24-hour, but I can tell you what. I can guarantee you we're going to be racing to win it, and that's all we can do. And there's nothing we're changing. We're doing the same thing that we do every year. 
Down under at the bend in Australia, uh, about 90 minutes out of the beautiful city of Adelaide, and about 20 years after sports car racing, mixed class sports car racing, was last down under the race of a thousand years, and with one driver uh, actually on the grid here. Uh, this weekend that uh, took part in that race, Antonio Lazaro. But uh, it's not why I'm here this morning, after a splendid Australian breakfast, standing with a splendid Australian, oh. Richard Crail. Wow. <laughs> proud Adelaidean, which I believe is the first time I've heard is what we call people from Adelaide. It is, yes. There you go. Very well done. Uh, there you go. And a couple of things to talk about. We're going to have a wander up and down the pit lane. With a, I was happy they did that, just on yeah. cue. Uh, so you can tell we're in the pit lane. What first thing is actually about this place. Now, you've been a part of the development of the Ben Motorsport Park with Dr. Shan- Assam Shaheen um, and his organisation. It is an astonishing achievement. Um, we hear all sorts of things. It's in the middle of nowhere. No, it isn't. It's mm. only 90 minutes out of a major city. Um, tell us a little bit about the, the genesis of this place. Well, it, it is remarkable, and we, from a South Australian point of view, and firstly, thanks for having me on. It's a great pleasure to be on this Podcast, regular listener, long-time fan, first-time attendee. Um, <laughs> South Australia, for starters, has an amazing motor racing heritage, and it dates back 100 years. Several Australian Grand Prix before it became a round of the World Championship. Obviously, 11 amazing years of Formula One, and that famous street circuit in the city of Adelaide. Sports car race, biggest supercar race on the calendar in the Adelaide 500, which is a massive part of that calendar. Um, and for, But from a permanent venue point of view, we've always lacked. We've just never had the population base here um, relative to Victoria, New South Wales, Queensland. Adelaide's 1.2 million, South Australia 1.5. So outside wow. of the metro area, there's nobody there. There's nobody there. Um, so we've never had the population base. But fortunately, we're, we're very lucky to have an enormous amount of motorsport support and I'd argue and, and this is based purely on a guess rather than any actual factual evidence GG but I reckon per capita probably more motorheads in this city than any other in Australia just based on that history it feels a bit like that I mean um, it's it's okay it's not a scientific sample but the likes of your good self I mean here in the Asian Le Mans series both our media delegates and her assistant both Adelaideans. Yes. Uh, beyond that, it just does seem to me that every other Australian I know through yes. motorsport actually comes from Adelaide. Um, it, and, that's, and that's a byproduct of the Grand Prix, absolutely. by the way. And, and people my age grew up with F1 in this city. But before that, th- this was the home of Holden, General Motors Holden, for 65 years. And the cars were built here up until three years ago, quite tragically. And that's a podcast all on its own. So. There's a huge heritage here of motoring and motorsport, and that's resulted in the level of car enthusiasts in this city and motorsport enthusiasts as a result. Um, And that's why this place exists, because an amazing family, the Shahin family, who are amazingly passionate about motorsport and motoring, decided, thanks to their success in business in this part of the world through a chain of service stations and convenience stores called OTR and, and a vast range of other businesses to leave this place as their legacy, which was to deliver a, an amazing world-class motor racing facility in South Australia, which we never thought we'd ever see in this part of the world. So we sit here every day, blessed that we've got this here, and, and now to see the Asian Le Mans series here and to see these international teams and drivers in this part of the world is just a 
another exciting step forward. We told a bit of a story yesterday as we passed the AVM BMW team prepping their cars and uh, passed into well, one of the standout entries here this weekend. This is Eurasian Motorsport with the Aussie uh, liveried number 36 car and the very much Kiwi. I can see you <laughs> curling your lip at that one. Um, <laughs> we love one them dearly unless yeah. we're playing them in rugby or cricket. <laughs> but you were telling me as well, you mentioned Holden, but mm. there was another manufacturer out here, right here. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That, that itself, there was an extraordinary story you told me yesterday about why we're exactly here. Yeah, correct. So the, this area, even though it just looks like a relatively flat, open plains area, 120 kilometres, 70 miles, if my maths is correct, outside of Adelaide, it's on the main freeway to Melbourne. So it is on a major dual carriageway it's out a of the city. lovely road, by the way. Yeah, it is. Just nice, easy cruise yeah. control. Way you go. You make things easy when you yeah. come here. Well, why would, Adelaide's the 20-minute city. We're just outside the 20-minute window. Um <laughs> Yeah, so the other major manufacturer in South Australia outside of General Motors Holden was Chrysler, which was Chrysler first. They built Valiance here, and then that became Mitsubishi Motors Australia. And they had a major production facility in the south of Adelaide, but this area was their test circuit. So massive dirt road loops that still exist and are being used for the rally track here now oh, wow. uh, were their off-road proving grounds. And then there was a 1.8-kilometre-long, essentially a runway, which was their high-speed stability proving there were quick twisty roads that they do a lot of their road car develop on. It's a proving ground. It, this was the proving ground for Mitsubishi yeah. Motors in this part of the world. Um, that's why this site is perfect for it because it was zoned for high performance motoring slash motorsport. When Mitsubishi shut down in the early 2000s, it was utilised for club level racing, the existing facilities. And that's why this has sort of evolved out of that facility. That's why they bought the place and that's why they've developed it here because it's absolutely designed for purpose but the original idea was to, to actually build the circuit around that runway if you like the drag yeah. strip but it didn't happen that way no because like all good race car or race track designers do the owners decided that they just sort of go with the flow and all good race tracks have evolved naturally haven't they and, and absolutely. the ones that are hewn and designed and computer aided and all that tend to not be the great race tracks the ones that follow the lay of the land are and they were building this were mapping out where the original location of the racetrack was and looked across to where we are now, which is two kilometres away from the corner of the property when you're driving in. So it's quite a long drive when you're actually going past where this facility starts. Shows you the extension of the extent of the place. Yeah, it is massive, a couple of thousand acres. Um, and then they looked over here, they had the whole track designed and mapped out and saw the natural rise and fall. TV does this place zero justice. Yep. And oh, I've been I'm sure the, you would agree with that. Well, yeah, but I mean, clearly I get both views. Yes. Uh, I, mean, I get the view from sitting in the uh, the booth for the Asian Amon series, where you're going to join us a little later, yeah. which is great. Exciting. Uh, but beyond that, was taken around the track at some speed in the Mustang safety car by none other than Cyril Teichmarlin. Who is the French Stig, apparently. The French Stig. We've just um, un- un- unveiled him. But he's, sure. he's, he's obviously going to sack me for that. Yes. But, uh, no. but that's... But, you're right, there was a lot of rise and fall. There's mm. one very Nürburgring-type corner, I think it's T12. Yes. Up over a crest into a hard right as you crest the, the brow. Yep. Um, this is a circuit with a little bit of everything. It's a circuit that rewards a car with a good front end. Yep. Um, the owners of the facility race GT cars. Yep. So Sam Shahin, who is the managing director of the circuit and runs it day-to-day, is the reigning Pro-Am class champion in Carrera Cup. and. Yep. Porsche Cup Australia. So, very, very handy race car driver. Yasser Shahin raced 
uh, Audi R8 Cup in Asia last year. He's raced GT3 cars. They'll be at the Bathurst 12 hour. He's a radical yesterday. Yeah, exactly right. So they're, they're guys that love high downforce cars. This is a high downforce racetrack. This is a, a racetrack that likes aero cars with a slick tyre, a front end, long, flowing, fast, attacking corners, couple of big stops. Yep. But if you've got front grip, you're going to really enjoy it. And that's why the... LMP2 and 3 cars especially, every driver that's come out this weekend's gone, wow, 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 oh my wow. god, it's a roller coaster we never yep. want to end. A uh, couple of challenges. Yep. One, we don't know yet how it's going to race yep. with this mixed car, mixed class uh, format. We're not going to know that until after the four hours this afternoon. Second challenge is, the, the, the challenge that's been kind of laid before me is, it's a long way to the next hotel. Yeah, so... The, that is part of the problem, but what, what we've seen very, very quickly... So the circuit's been operating for now under two years. Yep. So the opening round was 2018 in March, so we've had all half of 2018 at full operation capacity, all of 2019 and now in, in 2020. Um, in that short space of time, less than, less than two years, we've seen Airbnb explode... Oh, wow. ...in the region... We've seen... We're going to take a seat now, because yeah, it's quite a long walk down yeah, this no, bit. It's, it's quite warm this morning and nice in the shade. Um, we've seen several new hotels announced or proposed for nearby towns. So Tail and Bend is five minutes from here. Murray Bridge is the first major town. And then you get into the Adelaide Hills, which is a tourism region, which is where. So uh, there's a lot of it's tourists better, and hotels. Better. Yeah, so it's going to be a process. It's going to be a development process where... Stuff like that's going to emerge because of this being here, and that's going to stimulate the region. But the Airbnb thing here has been amazing. And what you may have noticed in this part of the well, we're a kilometre and a half from the River Murray, which yep. is the main river in Australia. And beautiful. It's a stunningly beautiful part of the world. We're 20 minutes from a, a world heritage site called the Coorong, which is a, a series of inland lakes that run alongside the sea. Incredibly beautiful, lots of natural wildlife. So there are huge opportunities in this part of the world to leverage the tourism side in what's a really stunning part of the world with the motor racing stuff. But that's only going to evolve. Yeah. And, and that industry will spring up because of this being here, because it brings people into the region. It, we certainly see this as being a proving meeting. It's been yep. the standout uh, headline for the Asian Le Mans series this year. We don't yet know what their intention is, whether or not this will become a yearly, uh, a biannual, whatever it might become. Um, but we also know there's been others down here to take a look. Now, I know certainly other um, uh, members of the ACO family, I know Jaradnevo has told a number of people who's been down here to take mm. a look. Sam Shaheen told me that yesterday and the day before, and the day before yes. that. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, we know as well that, that, that so the circuit was on, uh, if you like, a not a wish list, but a list of options to gauge opinion. Yep. The challenge is obviously a logistical one. It's one of the reasons why some of your fantastic talents here in Australia have remained in Australia, yes. um, but that's beginning to, to, to change around. We'll come to one of the reasons behind that in a moment, because it's another thing you're very familiar with. Is it getting better? Is it getting worse? In terms of... In terms of the, the viability the, the, of actually getting teams here and getting talent yeah, out. Yeah, I, I think it is getting better. I, I think you need to be more and more creative with how it's structured and managed in terms of freight and shipping and things like that. So sea freight is exponentially more affordable than air freight. Air freight is amazingly quicker. Um, and we'll, we'll get to Bathurst 12 hour in a minute. And with that event, we've experienced the same thing. And the way that the Intercontinental GT Challenge is structured, it allows teams to sea freight cars, which is infinitely more affordable. Yeah. So that, I think, is part of the reason of success. And 
this is very much the same. So it's it's spaced out enough so that they can freight these cars by boat if they need to. You've got not one single truck in the paddock. Exactly not right, one. which is obscure for a race meeting in Australia. Yep. Can I just say, because we don't have that. Yep. Outside of the 12-hour, that's just not a thing. It's obscure. Well, we see uh, that we, one, of the, one of the features of VX supercars in the past, uh, and Virgin supercars now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Is, is the trucks. The, the paddock is incredible. and yeah, it's, it's like a NASCAR paddock with the haulers all laid up. So, yeah, it's a different thing for us locals to experience that and working out of a container is a bit foreign to a lot of, not just race teams, but race fans here in Australia. So seeing the paddock with no B-doubles in it is quite a, a strange thing. Um, but I, I think it will improve. I, I think a lot of it, there's, there's commercial opportunities for sponsorship around that, in-kind sponsorship, Um and I, and I think governments will back that kind of thing as well because of the tourism impact that bringing events like this has. So I can tell you for a fact that the South Australian government is watching this very closely. They're a partner in the this event, here. 100%. Um, their tourism arm is very, very interested. They're aware of what this place has the potential to do for tourism in South Australia and Adelaide in particular. Um, so they'll watch that and they can then leverage deals as well with their own trading partners that may help bring people here. So um, is it easier? I, I don't know. The way the economy is at the moment, I don't think it's ever going to be no. easy, but, um, but I, I think it's more cho- feasible. There's a bold choice that could be made here Correct. to make this. Moving on though, yes, because we did, just did mention, and it was what we we're going to move on to anyway, the other big event the other big international endurance event in Australia, which you've been a key part of and a, an incredibly effective part of, very positive Pressure. force in, um, is, of course, the Bathurst 12-hour. That's coming up not too long in the future, and yeah. I'm sure you've already got a big to-do list for that, Quilsy. It's massive. Um, and can I just say that, that actually that a thought came to me the other night when we were having dinner that there, there's a potential, and I realise there's different sanctioning bodies behind them both, and ACO, SRO... Do they get on? Do they not? I honestly don't know. I'm, and, I'm and sure they call each other every evening to check I'm each other's sure, okay. I'm sure they do. Um, but there would be a potential for these two events to coexist and if not run back-to-back, run in close company. And you could have a two- or three-week-long international motorsport bonanza in this part of the world when the supercars don't start till late February other domestic racing late february early march you've got a clear window you could build something really special between the two that's my completely personal no i think that's a, that's opinion a, but a, 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 a very valid and a very valuable um and there's cars here that could race in the 12 hour 100 and there's 12 hour cars that could race in this absolutely so why wouldn't you do both if the if the potential arose to build both events that would be fantastic anyway what a, what we'll a, work on that and what what a bonus that would be for things like manufacturer activation as yep, well. exactly right. I mean, uh, if you're looking to attract people to your high-end road cars, what better than a road trip between Bathurst and Adelaide? Amazing. Absolutely. I agree with you. Let's, let's work let's, on that. Let's, we'll let's take, do that. We'll take 10%. Let's um, talk about the 12, about the 12 hour. I mean, look, I've shared the booth with yourself and John Hindoff uh, for a few years in the past. I've been back as a journalist uh, last year. The, my colleague and my, my co-host, um, Stephen Kilby will be back again this year. It's become one of the unmissable events, and I'm, I'm hoping that you understand that that's its status now in the world. Yeah, we do, uh, with with a slightly bemused look on our <laughs> face, perhaps, because it, it, we sort of don't believe it. Because um, those of us that were lucky enough to be there in the formative years when it was a race for road-going production cars and we bought GT cars in 2011, it was a massive gamble, and we had 24 cars on the grid, and two factory Audis, a couple of um, privately run Ferraris, and that was it. Um, and to see where it is now as a race that 
major manufacturers are throwing an enormous amount of coin at and sending factory drivers and all the activation that goes with it and works Bentleys and works Porsches and um, Porsche last year won the race and went absolutely crazy because Bathurst was the one place which has endurance racing folklore, Daytona, Le Mans, Nürburgring, Spa, that they hadn't won. They won the 12-hour and they were activating it for eight months. <laughs> so from our point of view, it was amazing for the event because we just rode off the back of that. And we're very, very thankful for that. So to answer your question, yeah, it, it blows our mind a little bit that it's become what it is. But at the same time, from a local point of view, we understand how special Bathurst is and we understand how special it is to us. So we can only imagine what international teams and drivers and partners and brands coming in see it as and that's why they respect it so much but i think it's, it doesn't it show it's three things for me it's it is three things it became a very easy race to follow mm-hmm. through the deals that were done to stream and broadcast it we yep. watched the numbers skyrocketing and yep. that comes down to the quality of the broadcast package including commentary that you and john and others you know well, and, and I'm you're not, good well, self as well yeah but you know you're part that, of that that that, that, that that did bring it to a much wider audience. That's number one. Number two is, my God, that place is awesome. Yes, there is no other. There is no other racetrack on the tra- uh, on the planet like it. And you know, we've we've talked before about uh, from a UK fans' point of view, certainly a older generation UK fans' point of view. It was something of a kind of mythical place that we would see months after the Bathurst One Thousand yeah. in a highlights package, a very good highlights package on UK terrestrial TV with camera technology we'd never seen before. That's number two. But number three, all credit to him, um, the IGTC, the Intercontinental GT Challenge, which was, uh, you know, often said structured around the Spa 24 Hours. No, it wasn't. It was structured around Bathurst because that's what gave them another Blue Ribbon event to expand that product. And that continues now. And it probably gave them proof of concept because the proof of concept with IGTC is that the local... GT3 teams can represent the factory at those local events so Audi are the prime example and Audi have been with the fullest of respect the best brand in the 12 hours history because they've supported it for all of its now 10 years as a GT race and they activate it brilliantly but they're probably the model that SRO like the most because their IGTC representation in the race this year and for the last couple is from Audi Sport Customer Racing Australia team based in Melbourne they've got three current spec Audi R8s Um, they've brought Garth Tander to the fold and Audi's parachuting in eight factory drivers to join them and that's how that model should work because Audi don't have to send cars here they don't have to send that many crew here they send some engineers they send some senior management they do the corporate stuff it makes it cost effective the local teams get a heap out of it because they can represent a brand at an international level in a major race. So, And I think because of those freight logistics you and I talked about before, Australia is the best place for proof of concept because this is probably one of the hardest places to get freight to affordably because it's so bloody far away from everywhere. Yep. Um, so I think that's why it works. And, and we've, we've, as an event, the Royal Wee... I've worked pretty closely with SRO on IGTC and building that and, and working with them to do it. And we take great pride in being the first round of that championship and and trying to lead the way, I suppose, in GT3 racing. We do things a little bit differently to some of the other ones and I think they respect that as well because the Australian market's so unique that it needs to be an Australian motor race with that international touch. And I think as well, that's why it works. And I remember you saying the first couple of years you came, you loved meeting the Australian drivers that you yeah. hadn't heard of before. So you may have heard of Craig Lowndes, but you'd never seen him in a Ferrari Absolutely not. until he held off Maxi Book to win the race in 2014 in that amazing finish. So 
And I was going to come to that, mm. because that's the other thing that I believe that Bathurst has given us. And we've seen it again here this weekend, yeah, yeah. which is it gave an opportunity for those great drivers to try their hand at something a bit different. Yeah. We, we came through a tricky period where supercars and you know, Yeehaw events at that time were going head-to-head, and yep. it didn't work for anybody. No. And actually what was... Uh, the happy kind of conclusion of that was, with supercars getting involved in Bathurst 12-hour, they realised its uniqueness, its value, and now... They're very happy bedfellows. And what have we got here? Um, you know, not that far down the road from Bathurst, Shane Van Gisbergen making his LMP2 de- de- debut yeah. in remarkable yeah. fashion. And, and to see Craig coming to this past 24 hours, and yes. not just how quick he was, yep. but you'll know better than just about anybody, just what a spectacular individual he is Correct. Uh, uh, away from the car. What the Bathurst 12 hours done in my, um, uh, my regard mm. is... It's given a shop window for these guys, an opportunity for those guys to see there is something beyond an addition to V8 supercars, and we're seeing more and more of them. Chaz Mostert has been a part of this championship yeah. in the past, and boy, did he impress. Well, and Chaz Mostert at the 12 hour, the 12 hour is in a way responsible for Chaz picking up a raft of BMW drives internationally because he jumped in a privateer car a couple of years ago, M6 GT3, and threw the thing on pole position. And all the BMW teams that were there, I think Schnitzer were there and yep. Volkenhorst were like, who is this guy? Yep. Wow, he's pretty talented. He's not really good at this yeah, guy. Exactly right. Yep. And all of a sudden he's gone off and he's done IMSA races with them. I think he's done the Rolex with has, those, hasn't yep. he? And um, I believe there's more planned for this year as well. So that's great. The 12-hour benefits from having the supercar drivers because, like I said, Australia is a really unique market. We rely on those household names from supercars, which is by far the main game in this part of the world, as in NASCAR is in the States. Yes. So your Dale Earnhardt's, your Jimmy Johnson's, they're the, they're the big names. It, it's exactly the same, I believe. And for all exactly the same reasons, yep. strength in, inside a very large country. Yes. Um, massive amount of talent, manufacturer interest, yep. as we have in Japan. Yeah, actually, the same thing is happening too there. Hundred percent. What what we did find was so so having supercar drivers in the twelve hour is valuable for the twelve hour from a publicity point of view, but I, I think what might have taken a little bit longer for people to realise was that having supercar drivers in the twelve hour was good for supercars oh, and yeah. supercar drivers. Yes, because. You can be the best in supercars, but you don't know how good you are relative to everything else because they're a unique animal. They're very, very different to drive. They're the biggest show in town, but they're not seen anywhere else in the world. But a GT3 car is ubiquitous. You can drive the same car at Mount Panorama that you can at Spa or at Dubai or anywhere. If you're good at that, you're going to be good at 100%. So all of a sudden, we were able to go with the best drivers in this part of the world. Hey, guys, look how good our drivers are. We, we rate these guys. We want to show you why. Remember when Jamie Wincup jumped in in 2017? Oh, yeah. Never raced a GT3 car no. before and passed his mate Shane Van Gisbergen with two wheels on the dirt down Conrod Strait. And this is a guy, the best ever in supercars. He'd never driven GT3. And all of a sudden, it's like, well, this is great for Jamie because it proves he can drive other things. Not that we ever had any doubt, but for the world, it's super. So I think that's where it's had a massive effect. And I've loved seeing the best from this part of the world that I know well and work with professionally and personally go head-to-head with the best GT racers that I look up to and, and go wheel-to-wheel with them. And hasn't it given us something that we lost in motorsport? Motorsport for decade after decade became a, um, a marketplace where you were a GT driver, a yep. touring car driver, a single-seater driver. Yep. And we're getting back to those days. Schengen van Gisbergen is a great example of it. Mm. Amazing in supercars, really, really quick in GT cars, and there's some big wins there. 
And now, yeah. I've seen, I saw him when he got out of that car in the LMP2 car. There's no doubt in my mind he's going to do more of this. Yeah. And that has given us a really old fashioned sort of Jim Clark like yeah. opportunity for people to get into multiple cars on either multiple weekends or, let's fingers crossed, multiple cars on a weekend. And I think motorsport's changing for the better for that because there, there was a period in those ultra professional categories where these drivers could just focus on that and they make a living. But as the economy changes and the economies in going car racing change and drivers perhaps not making the same coin that they once used to they now either want or need to go and drive other things to make the living that they want to do which just means they can spread their wings now shane is not in that case shane would drive a shopping trolley if he had the opportunity to do so he is a ridiculous race car driver and the more he's in a car the happier he is and that's how he stays sharp drive a car all the time doesn't matter what it is so he came from the raw before the 24 jumped on a plane got the call over facebook messenger on the flight to back home said oh you probably need to get to tail and bend there's a drive in a lmp2 car if you want yeah no worries and then he'll drive back to he'll go back home then he'll go back and do the rolex and then jump back on a plane the same week like so many people do and then run the 12 hour for triple eight racing in an amg and then two weeks later he's here at the pre-season supercar test in the holden commodore supercar so four different types of cars in six weeks more power that's brilliant and the more drivers that do that the better and that's like you said going back to the the jim clark sterling moss days the other driver i'm going to name check actually oddly shares the car with shane and that's nick cassidy yes now you know we've seen the likes of matty campbell coming through yep. who you know again possibly suffered from that isolationism yep um in antipodean motorsport nick throw the dice didn't quite get the the breaks he was looking for with a massive talent he is plowed his furrow uh but following his trade in Japan is now as of last year one of a tiny group of drivers that has won both in Super GT overall mm. and in Super Formula and if our listeners don't know what Super Formula is it's absolutely Google it. it's extraordinary well, it's extraordinary it? single seater mm. racing just going to say hello to Harry Tinknell who's a late, late <laughs> riser this morning he's up there but He's here in that LMP2 car. Mm. Now, where could that young man's uh, talent take him? Formula One certainly a possibility for him. Yeah, yeah. Now, Nick is a Kiwi, and it hurts me to say it, but he is special. Yeah. In Australia and New Zealand, we have a rivalry. But what we tend to do is really? make... Yeah, I know, We've right? We've not noticed. No, no. Uh, what you may have noticed is that um, great New Zealanders, we, we claim... Russell Crowe's oh, right. Russell Crowe's you know David Brabham is British he must be because no, when he drove for Bentley he had a British flagless absolute rubbish <laughs> don't, don't swear at me like that good one seriously um, yeah, Crowded House they're, they're originally from New Zealand but definitely Australia, one of Australia's great exports um, Nick Cassidy's hugely special he's got a lot of friends in the Australian paddock he spent time here before he, he's an outrageous talent isn't he and to do that double duty like he did last year in, in Super Formula and, and Super GT was extraordinary. It has a following here, those categories, I think, because Australia and Japan have a, quite a close motor racing relationship as well, and a lot of our drivers have been up there. Yeah, terrific. He is a superstar. And that's the stories you like, though, isn't it, is following these kids yeah, as they're absolutely. coming through. The Matty Campbell story is extraordinary, and full credit to Matt's backers. They kicked him out of Australia. He had every opportunity to be a supercar driver, but they said, no, look, you can come back and do that later, with no disrespect to the supercar guys, but we feel like you can be a You've GT driver. Go and have a go. And he's this year a factory Porsche driver, and we're all thrilled with that. And, and, the sky's and, the limit for Nick Cassidy, too. Yeah, and gave you one of the standout moments in the history of the great oh, races of Bathurst 12 Didn't he? What a, what what a, a young star. Well, we, both of them. 
the the one on Raffaele Marchiello at turn one was my favourite. I, I like that more than the pass for the lead on the Aston because it came from nowhere. Yeah, one of the great moments, and and that was in, from a from an event PR point of view. We couldn't have written that script any better for this. Um, young Aussie, done good, gone overseas, come back home, won the big race for a brand that's never won it before. It was great, but from a personal standpoint, to see that kid succeed. But Cassidy's very much the same, and, and there's a raft of young drivers now in this part of the world. We've got Garnett Patterson, who's in the field this weekend. He's been quietly plying his trade um, in sports car racing, and I think he's done a really impressive job. He's in the LMP2 AM car. And there's a couple of others in the same position that we're starting to see make headway in sports car racing and GT racing around the world, which is just so cool. We'll leave it there for now. Looking forward to spending some time Likewise. in the booth with you later. All the luck in the world for the Bathurst 12 hour. Thank I you. won't make it this year. Stephen, as I said a little early, will be down there with you. Um, what a great country. And the final thing to say here, and I do feel it necessary to say it, so every time I speak to an Australian, I'd get any vague... It's not about cricket, by the way. Um, is the world's crying at the moment with you guys. Thank we, you. We hate to see what's going on here, and it's a delight to see how much support in the paddock is being shown very visibly and financially for the efforts of your amazing emergency services at the moment for the tragedy that's unfolding across numerous states it, it's been extraordinary the outpouring globally that's come in and and we've been affected directly in this part of the world kangaroo island which is not far geographically from here uh more than half of that place has been burned to the ground it's just beyond belief what, what's going on in new south wales queensland and victoria is amazing but even locally it affects I found out after qualifying yesterday that a field not far from five kilometres from my house burnt down yesterday in what was quite a cool day yeah. so we're all on edge at the moment but the outpouring has been amazing and even this weekend I know that um, the Asian Le Mans series organisers and the ACO have got together and there's a website for donations Foster and Van Gisbergen have set up their merchandise range yep. and are donating to that so the cause has been amazing with uh, mm. raising uh, fi- uh, uh, funds for the firefighters yeah. as well we saw hundreds of those arriving yep. in Adelaide to come fight the fires in Kangaroo Look, let's put that to one side at the moment. Let's think happy thoughts. Great race to come, we hope. Another great race to come at the end of the month and into next month. Krelzy, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, mate. Anytime. So, in a slightly echoey uh, pit garage at uh, the bend, in front of an extraordinary car, which the gentleman standing next to me can explain what we're looking at in just a moment, But it's not the main reason we're here to talk to Dr. Sam Shaheen. Dr. Sam Shaheen, this place is astonishing. Can I just say congratulations for what's been achieved so far. Delighted to be here with the first international race to come and use the the full 7.7 kilometres of the bend. Before we get into that, let's have a quick word about this extraordinary little car that we've got in front of us. We've just fired this thing up and it's put a big smile on everybody's face. Um... You know, I, uh, I love history, and I uh, love to respect history. Um, Australia has a very proud history in motorsport, and uh, some people forget that uh, uh, one of the most wonderful brands started here in Australia, the Elfin brand. Uh, Elfin was started here and in South Australia by a gentleman called Gary Cooper. And the first car that he ever built and engineered and raced himself is a 1954 Cooper Austin, and this is the beautiful machine we are looking one. at now. And I... Um, Traced this down to a a museum here in Australia, and uh, it is by a long way my absolute pride and joy. I absolutely love this machinery. You cannot help but look at this thing and reminisce of uh, motorsport uh, in in an era gone by 
and not that long ago. No. Uh, incredible how they used to race these machines and uh, not that long ago. That said, we are now here in the 21st century mm. and now popping into the third decade of the 21st century. And if I might say so, you've given us something very special uh, with the bend, the, this motorsport park, and that's exactly what it is. Awful lot already on the ground and in the ground, but a lot more still to come. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about why yeah. before we get into the how. Yes. Well, the bend has a long uh, story. The, uh, the history will be... Uh, perhaps told uh, uh, one day uh, we still a work in progress. This is uh, an aspirational uh, facility. This is a very uh, aspirational development. Um, and you know, we only live once. And uh, if we're going to do something, uh, heck, uh, why not really give it a, a good crack? Um, so the, the motivation was to build something uh, that is bold. Uh, that is uh, almost futuristic, that can almost look at the requirements, the demands of motorsport and more importantly, the motorsport participants uh, in decades to come. Uh, We forget that motorsport, there are some critical elements to motorsport survival. Uh, Teams, cars, drivers, absolutely. Uh, they, They provide the core ingredient. But so much has to work in a motorsport facility for them to be sustainable. And central to that are the customer. Uh, the, the, the demands of the motorsport public have changed over the last 10 years, let alone the last 20 years. And, uh, you know, I, I'm a medical by profession, but I, am, uh, I, have, I have changed careers three times, and I feel like I'm a retailer at heart. And everything at the Bend is, is, is very customer-centric. Uh, I have kept in mind always what would a customer, what would a visitor like you, like me, that comes here would like to see. And I hope we've come some way to delivering that and and, and slightly better than it had historically been delivered at other motorsport facilities. You've got this multi-format track, maximum 7.7 kilometres, but there's... It can be operated in various ways with two events at the same time as well. Correct. Plus the cart track, the drag strip I gather in planning as well. What else can we expect from the bend in the future? Uh, we sit on 2,000 acres of land. We have plenty of land and uh, we have been very careful to ensure that we have the right zoning for the land. Uh, I spent a... Uh, uh, an appropriate amount of time visiting facilities all over the world and uh, and and so many have been captured by uh, uh, issues that they had and should have foreseen either at the development phase or in the preceding years. One of the most important ones are protection from the urban sprawl, for example, yeah. allowing... Uh, allowing the facility to grow without impinging on on on, on their surroundings, whether it's people, whether it's uh, uh, flora, whether it's fauna, whatever the case might be. So we 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 have we ensured that as as the number one priority. We have got a very unique zone, certainly in Australia, that that has given us that has allowed us to continue to invest and to develop to the scale that we have here. So this this is an FIA grade 2 circuit, FIM grade A circuit, the only, the, the only facility in Australia of that grade. 
this facility, the Ben Motorsport Bike, has the only CIK accredited go-kart track. Wow. There are two bespoke drift tracks here. There is a four-wheel drive facility. There is an off-road rally facility. Uh, we have a holiday park on site. We have a hotel and very uniquely sits on top of pit lane with magnificent views. You know, you're right on top of the gantry in some of the rooms. Uh, so there are a lot of unique attributes to this facility. And if I can go back a couple of steps, I still don't know whether we have got the right recipe yet. But there was something very, very clear from the outset. If we did not, if we did not aspire, if we did not put together a world-class facility with so many unique attributes, it was definitely going to be a failure. So I, I, I didn't know, and I'm not sure I still know what the recipe for success is, but I certainly knew that unless we built something so unique, so unique, it was certainly going to be a failure. It had to make the case, and today still the Bend has to make the case so compelling for everybody, visitors, teams, series, to come here. Otherwise, why would they? And so many facilities take that for granted all over the world. Just because we've hosted, whether you're a Silverstone or Spa or Philip Arnold or Bathurst, yep. whatever the case might be, just because you've hosted great facilities in the past does not mean, does not ensure you're going to secure those facilities in the future. That's a quick couple of questions. I should say, by the way, for the purposes of our listeners, that the car you can hear going by in the background, another South Australian motorsports story, that's the Brabham BT62 doing passenger rides yes. right now out there. This is the first international race. It's the first mixed-class sports car race, not just at the Bend, but here in Australia for 20 years. Correct. Proud heritage that goes back 20 years, but it has been 20 years. We will know in about five hours how raceable this circuit is. And yes. I know that's something you're watching with kind of bated breath we have Pierre Fion here from the ACO obviously the Asian Le Mans series part of that feeder series there is an aspiration isn't there that obviously we come back with the Asian Le Mans series but that's not enough is it no uh, as I mentioned at the outset this is a very aspirational project and uh, I am a very optimistic um, and a uh, uh, and I'm not shy of of as I have from, from day one, declaring that we want to host uh, international, top-level international motorsport events here um, uh, in any form, uh, two wheels, four wheels, uh, whatever series uh, uh, that we are capable of holding here. Um, we, we, we've ticked the first box. We have a facility good enough to host any level of motorsport here. Uh, yes, the, the, uh, I'm, of course, very biased. I think it's a, it's a great, great, great track. It's an absolute highlight reel. Uh, but the testimony will be in uh, five hours' time, what the drivers, what the owners, what the series um, uh, testimony is. Uh, I have no doubt that uh, this is a great track. I've taken... Uh, again, an appropriate amount of care in, in designing the facility and the track. Uh, and uh, I, have, uh, I am very, very uh, keen to hear their testimony. I'm convinced that we will uh, see some um, special racing here today. Uh, the, 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 the corner sequencing, the overtaking uh, corner positions have all been very, very curf- carefully crafted um, and it will certainly, it will certainly uh, separate the boys from the men this afternoon. Fantastic. Thanks for your time. Go and enjoy the crowd out there enjoying this fantastic sunshine and facility. Uh, we'll know exactly what kind of great racing we're going to see in just a few hours' time. I'm going to have great fun calling it. We will. Thank you. I look forward to it.
Let's turn your hot and pit lane. And we're about, what, an hour or so before race start. Davide Regon, Ferrari factory GT driver here with what is the world debut for the Evo kits on the GT3 car. We'll talk about that in a little moment. First and foremost, though, from the GT driver's point of view, tell us a little bit about uh, the way that you're finding this circuit. It's brand new to all of us, of course. How you're finding it in terms of, well, not just as a driver's circuit, but also how you think it's going to race. Yes. Uh, yesterday, the pole position was, of course, thanks to the Evo kit. Uh, actually, we have a good balance on the car, but it was not just that. I think the Evo kit is uh, a little bit, for sure, is uh, giving me um, even more confidence with the car and high speed, and uh, the brake stability was fine. But still, we need to work and need to set a little bit because it's the first time uh, this car uh, appeared. Uh, so... We need still to, to improve a little bit and remind that uh, we have a BOP for this, so we have uh, even 10 kilo more than the other. So in the end, for sure, it's better, but uh, <laughs> it was uh, actually a good lap for me yesterday. And uh, I love this track. I like it. Uh, very difficult to learn and uh, very easy to do any mistake. So I think the race will be very, very tough for all of us. Uh, very easy to do mistake. Uh, no, no, very easy to lose the rhythm. So... Uh, I really like the old style uh, of this track. It's a track that you can do the different lap by lap. So very, very impressed me. And uh, um, yeah, I would like that uh, a lot more track will be like this because uh, this is something that makes it spectacular and, uh, and uh, show, uh, you know, the good driver and good car. So, yeah. We know there's a number of WC drivers here. Excuse a second. Mr. Brabant goes by again. A um, number of the WC guys are here, including, of course, Alessandro. And we know, of course, that the, uh, the teams from the WC have been asked their opinion as to whether or not this is somewhere they'd like to see on the WC calendar. What do you think? Uh, to have this track on the WC calendar uh, would be, will be, will be nice, actually. Uh, for, uh, for, all the, for all the drivers, it's a challenge, and uh, we like the challenge. So, yes, it will be, will be amazing to have WC here. The only point is the overtake. We will see how will be the race because uh, there is the second sector that you cannot overtake at all. There is one line, and if you miss that line, it will be <laughs> dangerous. So, not dangerous, I mean, you, can, you could go out. So, um, it's, uh, it's important to be very concentrated on the race uh, and uh, respect each other. Uh, so let's that's see. That's going to be a challenge for LMP colleagues, isn't it? To show yeah, to LMP, uh, even for them, yes. And for us, GT to overtake uh, us uh, will be very, very tough. There is not so much overtaking point. But uh, yes, we will see. Uh, for now on, the, the, I really like this track. It's just missing some grip. I hope uh, it's uh, coming up some more grip uh, during the race because uh, now was very poor the grip. Beautiful sunshine in pit lane. A busy autograph session at uh, the Eurasia Racing New Zealand pit. Nick Cassidy, this is quite a place. Yeah, man, it's, it's awesome. Um, obviously, first time here. I didn't really know much about the circuit at all before we, we arrived, uh, but really pleasantly surprised. Um, my first laps, I uh, really enjoyed it. It looks like it's going to be challenging perhaps in traffic, but uh, the lap times have been coming down and down and down. We saw Shane van Gisbergen two seats away to your left, his first time in a downforce car, really. Um, looks pretty strong for you guys, but tell me what you think about... Well, the challenges you think that lie ahead on this uh, this circuit this afternoon? Yeah, seventy um, percent of the tracks are right for passing, I reckon. But there's a 
laps. Obviously, a tight section out the, out the back where it's fast, but if you get caught behind a GT car, you lose a lot of seconds. So um, that can be quite interesting for the race. I, I'm predicting that there's going to be a few incidents. Um, hopefully not for us, but obviously guys would probably get a bit greedy um, not wanting to lose that time. So that'll be interesting, but there's, uh, there's only five cars in our, in our class as well, so probably not as important as if there was a, a bigger class. It's been a period of remarkable success for you, and quite rightly so, in GTs, in Super Formula. What's next? Are we going to see you in sports cars, or is there something even bigger and better? Yeah, it's been a really good season. Um, it's quite funny running here because obviously Shane's from here and, and nobody really knows me in, in comparison, so it's been quite a, a weird weekend, but um, that's been okay. In terms of what's next, uh, I don't know, man. I mean, I'll run again in Japan this year, but for the future, let's see. Are we going to see you for the rest of the season here? Yeah, I'll be in, at the, the other two rounds of Asian Le Mans, which will be fun. Um, Dan as well. Shane and Dan were actually teammates in Toyota Racing Series. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, so that's probably the only single-seater. Well, Shane did Fallen Ford and then Toyota Racing Series, and they were teammates, first and second of the championship. And um, I was in karting back then watching them, so it's been, been a pretty so fun, the old man. Yeah. Yeah, been a pretty fun <laughs> weekend uh, joining them. Yeah. So final thing is about this series. Uh, 25, 26 cars we've got uh, here. We've got a nice mix of cars. Are you enjoying it? Yeah, um... I haven't really known much about the series before I've, I've joined, uh, so it's been quite an interesting weekend, me just learning what everything's about, but I think the atmosphere is really cool. Everyone's here for the right reasons, having fun, but it's serious as well. Um, from what everyone's telling me, the level's getting better and better. Um, you guys, I think, are doing a really good job uh, having the streaming and, and ways for people to watch, um, and coming to Australia is pretty cool as well. So. I hope uh, it's something that can, yeah, still has room to, to grow for the future as well. Great stuff. We'll leave it at that because you're falling behind in your order of yeah. uh, duties. I might go and see if we can have a quick word with Shane before we go. Thanks cool. very much, Nick. Good luck. Thanks, Graham. Cheers, mate.